morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus. Chapter 24 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Um, as you're finding your place in Exodus 24, let me just say a couple of things uh, about it. It could be, uh, is arguably one of the most important chapters in all of the book of Exodus. Because it's in this moment that we begin to see God solidifying a promise that he made, a covenant that he made with his people, and he seals it with blood. And so we're going to get into the significance of all that. Uh, but before we do, uh, I'm, I'm here today uh, to announce officially uh, my retirement from uh, coach pitch baseball for five and six-year-olds for the 2022 season. Um, it's over, okay? We had a good run. Um, Lots of funny moments. And uh, as I was getting ready uh, for this week and walking through Exodus 24, I was reminded of something that happened the very first week that we started baseball about 10 weeks ago. And I had a dad ask me, his son had never played baseball before, and he says, is it really necessary that, that my son wears baseball pants, that he has to go buy pants? And I said, well, uh, first of all, he can't play in his underwear, so that'd be inappropriate. Uh, second of all, if you play baseball, you really want to wear, make sure you wear pants. And it's really for one reason, because a lot of times in baseball, if you're sliding into bases or you fall down, you'll, you'll scrape your knees up. And, and so those pants are there to really protect you. Well, this dad didn't listen to me, and the second of practice, son shows back up, and we're out playing in this sort of uneven field, and it's got like rocks and different things, and, uh, and his son ends up diving for a baseball, and uh, he falls over and, and lays on the ground. Now, this kid in particular spent most of the 2022 season laying on the ground, doing what he wanted anyway, and uh, he gets up and uh, in practice, and his knee, it, it's bleeding, and so I had two options as a dad. If it was my son, I would have walked over to him and said, hey, suck it up, you're fine, put some dirt on it, let's go. But he wasn't my son, so I wasn't going to speak to him that way. So instead I go over there and I say, man, he says, look at the blood. And he's starting to get emotional and to get upset. And I said, I know, that blood looks awesome. I said, that blood, that actually means something. And he kind of looked at me with tears running down his eyes and said, that blood, it means that you gave your very best effort to stop that baseball. That blood signifies that you tried your best. And I love it. And he looked back at me and he said these words I'll never forget. You think I'm going to die? So I couldn't let that comment go, and I said, well, someday you are going to die. <laughs> but I think right now you're going to be just fine. He's the same kid. Several weeks later, uh, we were playing, and he hurt himself, and I went up to look at him again, and, and I said, it looks like we're going to have to amputate your leg this time. And uh, forgetting that as a five-year-old, uh, he does not sense sarcasm and takes everything as literal as possible, and he begins to cry and break down in the middle of the baseball field, don't take my leg. And so all these life lessons that sort of come my way, but as I remembered that story and when telling that kid on that day, that blood, it signifies something, it means something. It's significant. 
And I told them, I, I fall down and, and have fallen down and have scraped my knees and, and, and blood is there. And, and we all do, but the goal is we, we get back up and we keep moving. But in that moment, that blood signified something to him and I didn't want him to miss it. The same as in Exodus 24, we see the sprinkling of blood at the altar as they build an altar to worship their God who has delivered them from out underneath the hand of Pharaoh. Now, if you notice this week, we have skipped over several chapters from the previous. And chapters 21, 22, and 23 really are God's law that he gives, not necessarily the Ten Commandments, but they're the civil laws and, and how the people of God are going to conduct themselves. And, and I would encourage you to read through those laws later on. There's some good ones in there that, that maybe some of us need to be reminded of. But what I want to do is I want to focus our attention in chapter 24. And so let's pick up in verse 1 where God's word says this. Then he said to Moses... Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and, and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, and I want you to worship from afar. So Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now what the Lord is, is doing in this moment is he is calling Moses into his presence and, and really what Exodus 24 is about that we must glean from is what God is doing is God is the one that is defining the terms on which and how we worship him. He's the one that, that lays the standard before his people, and he does it in Exodus 24 as he speaks to Moses, and, and who can approach him and who can't, and by what means you'll go about coming before him. And so he says, uh, you, you set these men apart. Aaron, we know, eventually becomes uh, the head of all the priests. And, and then he's got his two sons that are in there. And oh, by the way, if you go read Leviticus 10 later on, you'll see what happens to the two sons when they plague with what the Bible just first refers to as strange fire. They break the command of, of God and what he had told them in worship. And so the Lord takes the life of, of these two sons of Aaron. But what God was doing is he was making the point of who could come near and, and he was limiting their access in that moment. And, and what the scriptures teach us emphatically is through John 14, 6, that we don't come to the Father unless it is through the Son. That we don't get access to him and the, and the benefits and the promises and, and the declarations and all that he has said unless we come through his Son, Jesus, unless we know him and trust him. Exodus 24 is the story of worship. Notice with me in verse 3, the text goes on and he says, So Moses came and he tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, what we know that these two phrases here, all the words, these represent the Ten Commandments that we talked about last week. All the rules are, are all the things that take place in chapter 21, 22, and 23. All of these civil and ceremonial rules and regulations. And so it says that Moses came and he tells the people the first time all the words, all the rules. And I want you to notice how the people respond at the end of verse 3. He says, and all the people answered with one voice saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will do them. We will do as he says and in the way that he says it. 
But yet if we jump down to verse 7, I want you to see the duplication of what Moses does. He, he reads the laws and he, he reads the words. And then verse 7 says that, that then he, again, later on, he takes the book of the covenant and he reads it in the hearing of the people again. And the people respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now here's the question that exists from that. Moses reads the, the, the law, he reads the words to the people, and he does it twice. He tells it to them over and over again for the first time so they can know what it is that God's expecting. And he does it again precisely for the reason that he wants the people to understand the laws that he just read. He wants them to, to know how it is that God is calling them and, and telling them to act and, and to reason. And so he reads it again. And again, the people respond again in the same way. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. Ingrains it in their, in their head and in their, in their memory, understanding what it is will be required of you, knowing full well that, that they could not keep the law in and of themselves but humbling themselves beneath it and, and before it. Several decades ago, I came across an article uh, that was given in the Dallas Morning News. And it was an editorial that a guy had written in and, and he was basically, it was around Easter time and this sort of circulated around in different places. And, and he was basically making the case to the Dallas Morning News that there's no reason why, legitimate reason why a Christian should actually go to church. And the reason why he would say this, he says, because I grew up listening to hundreds of sermons and I can't remember one time in my life where one sermon dynamically changed me or I remember the entirety of the message to begin with. And so therefore, by, by logic, if, if I can't remember or don't see any life change, then, then what's the point of even going and listening? And then a week later, another guy wrote in challenging that editorial. And he said, you know, the funny thing is, uh, there, there's never been one significant meal in my life that I would remember that ever changed my life. I don't remember some, some meal that, that made me a different person, yet for 40 years, I have to eat two to three times a day. Why? Because I need the nourishment that exists. I need to hear things over and over and over again. And so Moses reads the law to him again. So they would hear it again and, and they would understand it again and, and they would respond in a way that, that demonstrates obedience as they walk with him. Listen to me this morning, when God's word is read, it always calls for a response from his people. When God speaks, we, he demands that, that we respond to it, whether we respond in obedience or perhaps whether we respond in disobedience, we hear from them and hear from him and then we respond to him. So as he reveals himself in the word and, and as he speaks to us and as he changes us, we respond to those things. And so Moses wrote down all of these words. But then notice it goes on in verse 4 and it says that he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He erects 12 pillars and according to the 12 tribes of Israel and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then, 
It says Moses took half of the blood and he puts it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar and he takes the book of the covenant as we read earlier and it says all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood, verse 8, and he threw it on the people and he says, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. He builds the altar. The sacrifice is given. And you can imagine the, the scene that exists here in a moment, which makes me so uh, grateful that I, that I didn't live during this time. As you come before Moses to worship the Lord your God, and every time you come to church, you have to get sprinkled again and again with blood from the animals that you just sacrificed in front of your three-year-old kids. And over and over and over again, this ritual would take place over and over and over again, atoning for, for their sins, atoning for their misgivings. And he builds the altar, and they come, and they, and they worship him, and they sacrifice the animals, and they consume some of what was there based on the offering. Why? Why would the blood in this moment be necessary? Some would argue that the blood sort of brought them all together. So as you were there and you had the blood sprinkled on you, it brought some kind of kinship and, and brotherhood or, or sisterhood that exists. But, but that's not entirely the reason and not entirely what it was. It was some form of consecration. Like it was a way to purify and, and, and to maybe make you right before him. But that doesn't quite get it either. Some would say that the blood is there to, to, to demonstrate that, that God is merciful, that he, that he sacrificed something else in, in your stead that, that almost gets there. But most importantly, what we must remember is that the blood at the altar, it signifies the forgiveness of sins that have been come, that come from the Lord. It signifies the, the shedding of something significant. That, that died in, in their place and in your place. It was the propitiation that turned aside the wrath of God before the people of God. And it showed that God had accepted their sacrifice and that now they were included in, in his larger covenant of forgiveness before his people. Do you remember the story of Exodus began? And the reason why the Lord delivers his people out from the land of Pharaoh is so they could go and freely worship him. It was always about this moment in, in time that he cared for the needs of his people, but he, he sets them free for the distinct purpose that they would then go and be a people that freely worships him. That freely honors him and understands the forgiveness that he had given and the forgiveness that he has shown them through his mercy. And so he does what he says he does. He sprinkles the people, verse 12, and the Lord then says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait here that I may give you the tablets of stone with law and with the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses and goes up into the mountain, verse 14, and he says to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And then listen to these words in verse 15. Then Moses goes up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from out of the midst of the cloud. 
Now the appearance of the glory of Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered into the cloud up on the mountain and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the glory of the Lord. The perfection and the holiness of God on display before Moses. And, and God doesn't permit anyone else but Moses. Now, why is this moment, why is this scene so significant for us today? The relevance lies in the fact that Israel's experience in this moment on Sinai, it demonstrates to us today that we must have a right relationship with our God. It demonstrates the, the how and the, and the to and, and the way we are to go about even interacting with God and, and pursuing him and, and seeking to know him and, and to understand and, and to have the questions that we, we have answered. Years ago, uh, Haley and I at our previous church, we started a home group. That's what we called them. And so we had uh, a group of families. We started off with just two other families. And we began to sort of grow this home group and, and we were experimenting with different things. And uh, we had this one family that came in uh, one day and, and it was just the wife and she would bring her, her two children with her at the time. And she would just come and, and her husband would stay at home. And then every once in a while I'd run into her husband, I'd see him just out and about and he'd say, listen, uh, I love that my wife comes, but I'm never coming to your church. And I said, that's fair. I said, nobody's forcing you to. I said, but you're always welcome. A couple months go by and, and he watches how our home group begins to love on his wife and begins to love his children. And then there were a couple others that had a significant relationship with the, the husband, began to just be friendly to him and, and kind when we saw him. And then one day I looked up and I was in the middle of a sermon and I see in the back of the room, the guy that said he was never going to come to my church was sitting in the back. A couple weeks go by and he makes his way from the back and begins to move slowly up front. And, and then when you know, one day uh, I look up at my house on a 6 o'clock uh, p.m. Sunday night where home groups started. And I look up and as the wife comes in, I see the, the man who told me that he would never come to my home group, come into my house and sit at my table and fellowship with my family. This began a relationship with, with him, and, and he was a curious individual. He had a deep intellect and, and understood, and, and he characterized himself at one point as an atheist, and then he began to discover that, that he was really more agnostic more than anything. And so he and I would have conversations, and other people in the church would have conversations with him, not trying to argue with him, not trying to convince him, just to be someone there that could help answer the questions that he had regarding his own faith journey. And so this went on for a couple of years. And the back and forth, the back and forth, and, and all of a sudden, the guy that said, I'm never coming to your church, was sitting down in the front right. And the guy that said, I'm never going to come to the home group, was now coming to the home group. And he was making the meals, and he was bringing the food, and he was serving other people that were different than him. And all the while, as he, as he seeks, and, and the Lord is, is after him, and you could just tell something was going on within him, and he was, he was different. And he would say things like this to me. He'd say, y'all act so different with each other. Like the way that y'all treat each other. Like I have friends that I've known my whole life and, and they don't seem to be as loving and caring as, as this group is with this group of families. There's, there's just something that is different in the midst of that. And then one day he texts me on a Wednesday and it was about 5, 5.30. I was getting ready to teach that night and he says in the text, can I come see you? I think I'm ready. I said, ready for what? He's like, I'm outside your office, let me in. <laughs> so we sit down and 
he begins to talk about his journey and this whole process. And I looked at him and I said, well, there's really only one more thing to do. And I said, uh, it's clear, like you understand sin. It's clear that you understand your need for, for someone to redeem you and, and for you to have and receive forgiveness. And so really all that's left is for you to just call upon the name of the Lord. And so he calls upon the name of the Lord. He and I get on our knees in my, in my office. I'm crying, he's crying. And then he said something to me that has stuck with me ever since. Somewhere along the way, I don't know who said it to him or, or where he heard it, but he made this statement. He said, you know, uh, what I've realized is I have lots of questions still about God. But I know enough and I, and I, I know this, that many of my questions probably won't get answered unless I trust in him and put my faith in him. And I looked back at him and I said, that's precisely what that means. That oftentimes on our faith journey, as we're walking, we don't, we don't have our questions answered. And I said, one of the things that you're going to see within your life is the questions that you have now as you grow and as you mature in your faith, sometimes those questions just disappear. And you don't have them anymore. Because God has replaced that, that doubt or, or that, that feeling that existed there before Christ. And he has given you something different and, and new. And, and so he called upon the name of the Lord. And then I said, guess what we get to go do now? We get to go find your wife and tell her. And so we walk over to the other building up the stairs. And his wife's sitting in the room. And he, she sees us coming through the door and, and vice versa. And, and for the first time, his wife got to see her husband as a new creation in Christ. Now you say, Drew, what does that have to do with anything found in Exodus 24? Well, it has everything to do with Exodus 24 in the sense of this, that the time to be in a right relationship with God is now. That we come to him on, on his terms, not on our terms. You see, Israel's experience at Sinai shows us that we need to have a right relationship with God. Like the Israelites, we stand and, and we sit in the presence of a holy and, and a righteous God. But we, we can't keep the, the commands and the laws that he's given. We need someone to redeem us, to atone for our sins. And Romans 3.25 says this about Jesus. He says, God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood that he is the one that makes us right before him. Paul goes on and he says in Romans 5, we have now been justified by his blood. Revelation 1.5 says, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To receive that forgiveness today to trust him and to believe that his, his death was sufficient for you and, and for me, that it was sufficient for your sin and it was sufficient for my sin. To call upon his name and be saved. Father, we come to you now in the name of Christ in all your glory and all your holiness and all your righteousness. And we say thank you that you have redeemed us and made us your own that we are your possession. And so, Father, now I pray that if 
we are here today or watching and we don't have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that today would be the day that we call upon your name to save us. Father, maybe there are some in this room today that have just put off walking faithfully with you. They're, they're living in, in some cycle of, of sin, some rhythm of life that, that doesn't honor you or, or bring glory to you in any way. I pray that today would be the day in which we stop messing with those imperishable things that are harmful to us and, and lead to destruction. Father, I pray that you'd help us walk faithfully with you now. We pray and ask these things in the name of Christ and God's people said,